You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Good morning, Kirk. Hey, man. Kirk's coming to us live from California. He's out in the middle of the mountains somewhere in this room with three walls of just windows, and it's a panoramic view of California mountains. And I'm sitting here in Wisconsin with no vert in sight. Yeah, you should be jealous. I'm in an Airbnb, and Jess booked it. And the name of it is Romance in the Stars. <laughs> that is the name of where we are staying. It is quite uh, the posh circumstance. So I see you and you're in this tiny little office. Maybe it's not tiny with like paperwork and just stuff everywhere. And I'm looking at about 300 degrees of mountains from this very position. Yeah, you've got an impressionist piece of art behind your shoulder. You've got a loft with wood and steel exposed behind you and... I'm in Greg Kolb's office right now. (laughs) Yeah, this impressionist piece of art, by the way, is the creepiest thing in this house. It's this woman, and she has these big green eyes that are, like, bleeding down her face. You can't see this, but it's like somebody just splotched the paint for her pupils, and then it dripped down a few inches on each, and it just feels weird looking at her. We thought about taking it down. Maybe she just finished a workout, and her mascara is running with the sweat. Uh, green mascara i guess sure <laughs> who knows yeah we're we're both not in our usual recording circumstances and i uh i'm going straight laptop audio today so hopefully it doesn't sound too jumbled i'm on a chromebook today an old chromebook yeah so we're making it we're work professionals we can pull it off yes we are well today, so what's new with you we, today, we'll get we'll get to me here in a second bracken but i haven't caught up with you What's what's new with you? Well, I was about to say, we'll, we'll get up to you, Kirk. We'll get there. But let's make it about me first. I would love that. We just booked a family vacation to Ireland. Yeah. Leaving May 18th. And just happens to be Ireland's most daunting, challenging ultra race. Happens on May 21st in Donegal, which is our hometown. My mom's maiden name is Donegan. And so when we oh, went wow. there, when I was probably, I don't know, 12, no, maybe earlier, maybe nine, we went and saw Donegal and found the old family homestead and found the gravestones and did like the grave etchings of our ancestors. So the seven sister sky race happens in Donegal and we're going to be there for it. So I signed up for it. You're going back to your homeage. Oh, you signed up? Yeah, last night, late, I signed up. <laughs> Bracken and I chatted off Mike yesterday just a little bit, but um, this race sounds ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You should explain it. Well, I just searched running races in Ireland, and they got this list, and there was only two options while I was there that popped up on this website, but one of them said Ireland's most challenging ultra, which... The ego in me said, I could do that. <laughs> and I I clicked on it, 
And I started reading the stats of it. And I thought, well, that's tougher than I thought it would be. But every race site likes to kind of, you know, pump up their stats a little bit. So then I went on YouTube and I, I searched for it. And you know if there's race videos on a race, it's legitimate already. Yep. And there were lots of race videos on the Seven Sisters skyline. And then I looked at the videos and it's pretty gnarly. So you told me there was a, a like a 30K option and a 50K option, and you chose the 50K. 55K. 50, oh, 55. You, uh, you're becoming this endurance athlete here, Bracken, and you tell, tell, tell them about the, the seven, what the seven what sisters are. What is that? Yeah, it's the seven highest points in the Donegal area. So you run each one, but it's an out and back, so you run each one twice, except for the, the last one. You run that one once. But it's 55K with like 13,000 feet of vert. Training might be looking a little different for you coming up back in. <laughs> well, and this is the tricky part. They have a 30K. But I don't know yet how much of the actual course it follows and kind of how we talked. I don't want to just run the fells. I want to run the fells. I want to run the mountains. I want to run the scree because it's got everything. There's rocky scrambling, like all four scrambling for a large chunk. And then there's scree running. There's like boggy areas. I want it all. And if the 30K skirts that, I don't want to do that. But 55K mm. with 13,000 plus of vert is certainly beyond what my fitness is. Well, let's change that. You know what? You've done like, you did the Tennessee Mile, mm -hmm. uh, which was the six-hour ultra. You you do the High Rocks. You've done High Rocks recently. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't. Like, I, I think it's exciting, but I didn't get terribly jealous for, like, either of those situations. Let's say, like, like, like High Rocks, I, maybe one day I'll dab, I'll dip my toes in that water. But, like, eh, it doesn't move the needle for me as much as still, like, a regular Spartan race out in the terrain, right? But anyways, this one you started describing to me, and I'm full-blown meter of 100 envious of this race that you're going to do. Like, for real. It, it almost makes me want to hop on a... Hop on a plane, celebrate our birthdays together out in Ireland. Mm -hmm. If I'm being straight with you. Yeah. Well, I would accept that. Yeah. Watching this video, it's it's like watching a sky running race. There's ridge running where you're shrouded in clouds and you can't see more than 20 meters ahead of you. Like legit ridge where there's people like sidestepping to keep their feet from going over the edge. It's... We get tagged probably once a week in someone's post about, I went back and listened to Do Big Things and Swing the Hammer Hard. Those two episodes get referenced a lot. So time to practice what we preach. That is very exciting. So why don't you just give us like the elevator pitch here of how your training is going to change. Like now you have basically what, eight weeks? What is the Nine and today? a half when this comes out. Let's, let's you got 10 weeks. Uh, nine. Is it 10? Almost 10. 10. Okay. What are you going to do? It? Half when this comes out. So what are you going to do as a Wisconsinite, um, Midwesterner, non-mountain dwelling human to get ready for this? Like, what's your plan now? Well, the good news is I did 11 weeks for Tennessee Mile. And I was in worse shape starting that block off. And when I got there, I, I did 30 miles. 9,800 feet of vert and six flat. So I've got to add on another 5K and another 3,000 mm -hmm. feet of vert. 3,500 feet. 
Yeah, and travel. What day do you fly out? How how much in advance? You fly out the 18th. Okay. Get there the 19th, races the 21st. Maybe still a little mixed up on the schedule, right but... In the sweet spot. Right, right, right in the sweet spot where you're just exhausted. Early, early enough in the vacation <laughs> that I don't spend the whole vacation worrying about, well, is this going to tire me for the race? Yeah, that's exactly right. I'd rather race right away and then, you know, not have it over your head the rest of the trip. That's cool. So elevator pitch, I am going to not change. In fact, I went back last night after I signed up and revamped the training plan a little bit, but I'm still focused on high rocks for Vegas with Cali going after the doubles championship. championship. But I removed one day of lifting. Okay. And added back in two days of hill work. Love it. Soul focus twice a week is going to be getting vert. I assume one of those days is going to be getting some descending in on real terrain. Yeah, a focus on eccentric damage for 10 weeks. Yes. Like yesterday, I went and I did 32 minutes of of up and down technical steep hills. And then got home okay. from that and did thirty did 10 minutes of a sled push and pull wad. Yep. And then did 32 minutes of power hiking at 30%. So I got yeah, 75 minutes of, of work in. It was a good, like, dip my toe back into all of that stuff. How long are you going to build your long runs up to? Are you going to cap them at three hours still? Maybe do a split double or back-to-back long run, or are we just going to keep it straight up? Long run on the weekend, that'll be that, and we'll we'll see where the cards fall on race day. I'm going to hit as many two-and-a-half to three-and-a-half-hour days as I can, probably one a week, and then... I will hit ideally two big days leading up. We're heading down to Arizona this Sunday. So I'm going to try to get in the canyon and do like a four-hour day there and just try to smash my legs. And then I was thinking one day, maybe like four weeks out, either at Granite Peak or uh, Devil's Lake, go up there and run up and down the stone stairs for like four hours. Well, hey, if you go to Granite Peak, you let me know. Let's plan a day. Okay. Because I'm basically I'm in, in the that. mountains nonstop the rest of the year myself. So it starts starts on my end, too. But one of my big points of emphasis, and I'm going to do all my big days in uh, more minimal shoes. Okay, just to really mess your legs up? <laughs> yeah, and because this place is so boggy and craggy and rocky and technical that I don't know if I'm going to be able to get away with Hocus. Sure. So I need to be able to handle, I mean, the, the race is typically one between six and a half and seven and a half hours because it's such a nasty course. You can't get it done fast. So I need to be, a, be able to be on feet for seven, seven and a half hours in whatever shoe is required to get through safely that course. So I'm going to have to build my way up into that. I have a feeling there's going to be a few runs with them. Uh, Scott super track RC twos on your feet. Yeah. You should watch the race video. And in fact, I open this up to the audience. If anyone's ever run this or anything in that area on that kind of terrain, what shoe you'd recommend? Because looking at the terrain, I don't know if I can get away with less than like a four and a half or five mil lug. And you get so wet and muddy that I don't know if I can take a maximal shoe on that course. So, yeah. so Scott Super Train, our Super Track, maybe uh, a VJ Extreme. Or I don't know mm-hmm. if Max is grippy enough. Otherwise, I'm yeah. not sure. I'm looking at that Pulsar soft ground or 
Maybe the Adidas Terex Ultra. The Extreme 2 seems to be a popular choice amongst the the VJ, the still VJ-sponsored athletes. They seem to like that shoe a good bit more, so that might be a nice middle ground. I haven't got my hands on that one. Do you know when it comes out? Uh, for us common folk, I'm not sure. Is it like a mashup between the Ultra and the Extreme? I think it's just a little wider in the toe box, but looks pretty traditional to the original Extreme. Oh, there's no more stack to it? doesn't look like much maybe a titch yeah i didn't i wasn't analyzing people's feet too closely this weekend but i mean vj wore them it seemed to work out all right for him so he certainly did Yep. i noticed albin uh, not albin atkins ran in the craft carbon ultra yeah he was i don't know what that shoe is i i was behind him for a little bit um and i noticed that definitely i didn't know if that was a road shoe or if it was it didn't look very aggressive it's a tame trail. Okay. Got rocker, got a plate, got some foam in it. Okay. Yeah. Most mostly I think mostly VJ's on course. What it appeared yeah. to be, yep. Can't have the Evo Jaws. Yeah, yeah, like that shoe. I brought that shoe just in case, but I, I made I made the decision to go with the spark. But um let's get into the race quick. We don't need to spend a ton of ton of time on it, I suppose. But listen, I'm invested. I'm sure the running public's a little bit interested in how you did out there. Yeah. Well, I didn't do great. It wasn't uh, it wasn't my best showing, Bracken. I uh, the the biggest thing I noticed after the race, and we talked about this just a little bit before we started recording, but like, I'm fine. And if you had a shitty race, you should be fine, too. I certainly hope that you have enough good things going on in your life outside of racing. But if you have a bad one, you're not going to go step off a cliff. You can just go right back into life and enjoy the day-to-day like normal humans do. There's no pity party. There's no need to... Sure, you can, you know, feel a little bad for yourself on the drive home or something. But other than that, like, you have a bad race, and that really ruins your day or your week... Like you need to do some serious self-evaluation. I saw a lot of excuses out there from people who didn't do as well as they wanted to. And it should be all right, right? It should be all right. And so my first takeaway from it was like, people were super nice and sorry you had a bad race. Da, da, da. Thank you for that. But like, it's okay. It's okay, guys. And if you're one of those who didn't have a good race, like, it's okay. We're all adults here. We can handle a bad showing without, you know, wanting to quit. So anyways, I'm great. I'm fine. Things are good on my end bracket. They should be for everybody listening too. How do you like that little speech? That's good. I like it. And and I think we should remind people that there's a clear distinction between race facts and excuses. Stating the facts of things that went right or wrong is not the same as making excuses to justify your performance. And so people always say, well, I don't want to make excuses, but, and then they're either going to make excuses or they're going to state race facts. Mm. And I think you have a fact or two that will kind of shed light on why you didn't have a good race. Yeah. And it's, there's video proof. I watched it probably 30 times and it churned my stomach. Oh, it's so hard to watch. Um, yeah, I, I mean... Why don't we just, uh, that aside, why don't we just start from the beginning? For people who were there, we can walk back through the experience, and if you weren't, then you know. But 
this last weekend was the San Luis Obispo first stop in the uh, North American Elite Series and the second stop in the uh, Age Group National Series. I think I got those right. So it was a big weekend. It's a big turnout. Um, and I ran the you know the Elite uh, Super on Sunday. Everything you see online that people are posting about is true. It was fast. It was a runner's course. It's okay that it was a runner's course because we're going to have non-runner's courses coming up the rest of the year. So if you can't handle one in the beginning, you know, if you're a mountain goat, they're coming. So your time will be here. But um, Can I stop you? Yeah, please. I wrote an article probably seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, on the myth, the fallacy of the runner's course. Okay. I wrote it for Mud Run Guide. So I would encourage people to Google that, read it, and then reevaluate how they feel about the runner's course. Some people okay. forget that the sport is obstacle course racing, not obstacle in. I loved VJ Jones's post after his win. I thought he put together a very eloquent paragraph about the facts of the race. So anyway, you were correct. It was fast. It was runnable. And it's right there in the name racing. Yeah. And you still had to race out there, but, um, on my end, I mean, it's true. You look at the map, you dissect the map in the first two miles. I think we saw three obstacles, some overwalls, some monkey bars, and maybe a big wall, I think is all it really was. It wasn't much. Um, and and if you if you're really good at dissecting the map, you knew like if you knew what cards you were playing with your own personal strengths, you knew you either needed to go out aggressively and just stay connected early, or you needed to hold back because the second half of the course is where moves are really going to be able to be made. And that was true, spear throwing on specifically. But um you know, I had a little I had a little spear throw problem, which uh you know, we were talking last night, Brack, and and it's a new position for me to be in because I think you said it this way. I've always taken care of business for years since you've known me, since you started coaching me in 2016, show up, I take care of business. And if I don't do well, it's because my fitness wasn't necessarily where it needed to be. It wasn't because of mistakes. I mean, I hadn't made a mistake in three years and I've made three, three races in a row now. So this position is just super new to me and it's, it's weird for me to handle. I got to, I guess I'm having some sort of yips or something as they call it. Right. But, um, I'm sure most most that are listening saw the video at the spear throne. It was just a bit, you know, it happens. Like, I'm not the only one it happened to, but my spear came out, got all tangled in a mess. I tried shoving it back under the bars. Um, the spear must have went through its own loops in the rope, which happens as I shoved it back under the bars, and it was just a knot, knotted mess I couldn't get out. Went to a second spear. Same thing happened. You know, worked hard with with a group of guys like, uh, Atkins, Ryland, Lars, um, and to, to, we kind of put a gap on that next group of guys behind us, which would have been like Hunter and, um, Kent and Logan. Um, and then I sensed that these guys were catching up and starting to blow by as I was dicking around at the spear throw, still had some knots in the string, but at that point I'm like, I got to throw this thing. I already lost 45 or 50 seconds, so I tossed First, it. First, you switched to a second target. Correct. I switched to a second target. Rope was still a mess. I started panicking, to be honest, watching everybody fly out of there. I went from like ninth or, or seventh or eighth, somewhere in there, whatever it was, feeling like I was ready to still move well. Um, 
and then suddenly I'm in like 15th. I haven't even thrown my spear yet because the field was so deep. And I missed about an inch to the left. Back end of the handle, bumped the, bumped the target on the way by. But that was it. So my race was pretty much done. I tried to stay in it mentally the best I could afterwards. But I was, I was bleeding time hard. And, and I picked off maybe three, four guys the back half of the course. But, you know, when you're out there and you're, you're ready to race and feeling good. And I was feeling like, and this may sound nutty to you, but I feel like a top five was still in the cards. Like, like I was only making up ground on the guys I was around versus losing ground to them. So I felt like I was going to hold position well or move up, and uh, it just didn't happen. So that was probably the most deflated for a moment I've been in a in a race to date. Because if it's a B, sure, you can try to keep your calm, cool, collect. If it's a less stacked field, you can keep your collect. But in this, it's it's a death sentence. And Tyler Veerman, I, you know, Josiah Middow missed his right by me. Lars Arneson missed. Tyler missed. I missed. And what I think happened, and those guys can chime in with me, is we came just after that first crop of guys, and they all threw their spears, and they all made it, and they stuck them in those targets, and they stuck firm. All of us had to yank those spears out, and almost everybody's spear went under the fence between their legs because they had to pull so hard to get them out after the guys in front of us threw. And then I think everybody just threw these jumbled, messy spears, and maybe that affected their throw. I don't know, but it's something I'm like trying to comb through right now why our whole group of guys, aside from like Rylan, missed our spear throws but it happened Mm -hmm. so what do you do with it what do you think on that well i had that happen in a stadium because it's the same targets they'd been using those for a few years before they switched over to the outdoor races and so that was always it they were buried in there tough to get out so you learn to get up there and really crank on it but because it's on pavement at a stadium race it shoots out and then it just skips across the ground yeah and now I know to put my foot there and try to block it. But it yep. scooted right under the fence. And it was, I had that same panic feeling. Luckily, I pushed mine back through and it didn't touch the rope. I was able to walk around, like duck under the fence, fiddle with it, pull it up and throw just fine. So I can see exactly how that would happen. Because you guys were on hard packed dirt and it just skittered right around the ground under the fence. But then... We've talked about this before, about mining your rope, where I'm a, I'm a bow fisherman. I like to go bow fishing. And one of the first things you learn is you mind your line. You like to go bow rope. fishing? Love it. When have you done this since I've known you? Since high school. You're a bow fisherman? I got a bow fishing setup. I have two bow fishing setups. I have a recurve and a compound. You have a recurve? Jesus, man. We got we to gotta have a side conversation yeah, on this. Shots. Yeah, because <laughs> it's a difference. You either hold it at oh, draw, yeah. or you take quick snapshots, and then that way you can hit fish that are darting. You are such a man, Bracken. Continue, and then some, Kirk. Well, anyway, the mm. first thing you you learn is that you have to mind your line because it's attached from your bow, either on a reel or just on a spool to the back of your yep. arrow. And when you pull back and you release, if you have a knot in your line, if you have a tangle, best case scenario is it kind of pulls it offline but worst case is you get what's called snapback it catches on your bow and the arrow starts moving right back at your face like it went bungee jumping mm-hmm. and it's dangerous and so yeah if there are knots in that rope there's a real chance that at some point it just started affecting the flight of the of the spear whether it tugged on it or it caught or it actually pulled it to the left or right yeah, it's an interesting thing, and I've never had to dissect this because I've always shown up, thrown the spear, got my job done, went on for three years without a miss. And 
So what I think, what I'm trying to make sense of is either the knots or, you know, most of us are right-hand throwers and they've been tying the lines on the left. So for some reason, they've all been on the left recently. There might be one or two spears with the knot line on the right tied, you know, faceted. Um, and for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, the spear throw, because you're not all obstacle course racers, you have this fence in front of you and you have about a 30, 27-foot spear throw to throw at the target. And they fasten a line to this fence in front of you so that the next competitor can pull the spear back. And they typically fastened it on the left recently. So when you pull the string and you're a right-hand thrower, the loose string has to be a, come across your body because the spear's in your right hand, but the rope is faceted to the left side of you. And so that's a tricky thing. And, and so what I think is like if, the, if there's knots in the rope or some heavy loops that haven't come quite undone, I'm thinking, because I've missed to the left both times, and I've never missed to the left once, Bracken, in practice. If I miss, it's to the right every time. And so, I've, and so I'm thinking same. that you're the same. So I'm thinking that if we're missing to the left, it, is there some sort of factor with a pull on the string coming across, and maybe if it's, it catches on itself just a little, it's just enough to change the flight path to the left? I, I'm, I'm struggling to wrap my head around it, but that's the best I can come up with if, if I'm not missing left in practice, and you know, I might miss one out of 30 in practice, and when I do, it's to the right. So I'm, I'm confused about that. So I'd like people to chime in on that. I don't know what your thoughts are, but. Well, it's legit. And I've done some late wave running with athletes before. Okay. And by the end of the day, the string is probably a foot shorter because at some point it snags or it snaps and they retie it. But the mm. retying takes up the line. And so by the end of the day, there's less wiggle room in the in the spear string to allow it to go to the target. There's just less slack. And this was a day two race. So there's always the chance that the rope's been retied and there's a knot somewhere in the middle. And that not only shortens the, the spear rope, but it also encourages snagging and tangling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's it. I it's don't know. A, I don't know what the... Re, the good way around this is but it's a setup that's designed to have issues yeah well these are see and this is getting excusey and it is what it is but when you're an athlete who wants to dissect your race and then make it better you're trying to figure out the facts here and maybe it's my my technique right it very well could be so um but it was you know doing course recon like for example i was talking to mark godette uh, who had a great race um before the race in the morning and he had done his course recon and he went through and combed through the spear throws and there was the second to the end was tied on the right and he said it's tied on the right but don't take it because the rope is so short that if you throw it hard it will hit the spear it'll hit the the target and bounce back at you because the string's completely taut and i got to that and that one was right next to me and i was like that's the one i should be taking because it's on the right but he had given me the intel that that not to. So things like that can make a difference. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's talk numbers. Yeah. You spent 48 seconds from the time you got to the spear to the time you left. Ugh. It, that should be 15 seconds Eight. at most 10 usually. Yeah. So let, let's call it 38 seconds of nonsense Ugh. plus minimum 90 seconds of burpees. So we'll say yeah. 210 is your time penalty before you got to start running again. Then you add in the fatigue and in a 10 K you can't give away two ten in time. I'll tell you what we went. We went from, I mean, I think the first mile was five twenty seven for me. 
And then the second mile was like 531. Um, and that was with a wall or two in there and monkey bars still came out to that. So I think we were running like 520 pace maybe through, and it wasn't clean footing for anybody racing there. It was like potholes and like you, it was enough to slow you down at times. Um, some hit little undulation Creek beds and things like that. But, um, I think I went from running five twenties to running six ten probably for, <laughs> for a half mile to a mile. And that just, that just brutal as you get yourself back up to speed, you know how it goes. So that's tough. It's, it's demoralizing too. I comb through the data just for the guys that were around me, like Tyler, Lars, Josiah, um, Rylan, uh, who else was there? Atkins. Um, when we all came in, I looked at the timestamps and we were 27 seconds behind the leaders like VJ Mark. I think Chris Brown was up there. That was 20 minutes into the race. So about halfway through, just over halfway through. And they had a, about a 27 second gap on us. And then we had about a 35 second gap on the next crew of like, and this is by the timestamps of Hunter, Kent, Logan, uh, Glenn, those guys, we were kind of like that chase pack where we still felt like we had eyes on the leaders. And then the race unfolded from there. I think a lot changed on the back half with the carries and the plate drag. Some people got stuck at for some reason, um, things like that. I think getting through the obstacles, like a VJ who's so fast and efficient, the amount of time he put on people. And then they gave us a 300 foot climb at the end. And if you were expired, like I looked at that last climb, it was a four minute and 55 second climb for VJ and Botrys, roughly. Really? For me, yeah, for, for, I mean, it's a sizable climb where you're going uphill the entire time. I think the rig was in there. Uh, for me, you want to know what it was? Well, first of all, in a 40-minute race, to have a five-minute climb at the end, that's significant. Yeah, that's where the big gaps happened. I took a look and combed through that, and I was suffering pretty bad after burpees going into that. I was 50 seconds slower on that climb. I bled out <laughs> 50 seconds compared to the leaders. That's 10% of the race. Yeah, it was... Uh, which um, most people were able to power through, but I think if you were if you had over revved, that climb really you lost a lot of time on there, and that's where most of my time ended up coming from. Besides, you know the whole snafu earlier. So that'd be my race recap. Um, I know that's not much of one. It was hard to keep my head in the game after that, but you know, it, it, you, you still got to show up and run hard and, and pick off positions because it's important to do that. And yeah, I think I gave myself a pity party for about a minute or two after I got up from burpees and then said, like, let's recommit. You never know what will happen. And you don't ever know what's going to happen in these races. But um, fitness is great, man. It's good. I was running. I'm as fit as I've ever been on a course like this. And I'm, I sound like a broken record now. But um, running with guys that were, you know, predicted to potentially podium and felt like I was in the mix and just didn't didn't come through. And my, my swan song is the same that, you know, a dozen athletes have to share that w had higher hopes for the day. So it's not like I'm a case study of one or, you know, it's a unique situation, but it is what it is. I just think that, you know, the big thing, like after combing through Instagram afterwards is like, it's okay. It's all good. And one course might play to your strengths and one might not. And you might want to bitch about how Spartan's getting soft on us, but you still show up to the races. That's your choice to fly across the country, tow a start line in a race in which you know what you're getting. So I don't think there's any reason you need to gripe about what this is because we know what this is. The very sport that houses and feeds us and supports us, like we're lucky to have this. And I know it's not the Spartan of old at times. And I know there's not 
carries that are going to break people's backs and make minutes of separation right now. But I think they're still potentially coming. And, like, I don't know. There's so many positives about the weekend. I know it wasn't everybody's, you know, horses for courses, as they say. But um, it's early in the year. we got a lot of racing left and some grindy courses, from what I understand. And I don't think we're going to hear as much complaining out of the same people then either because, of course, it's going to change. So I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying here. But, you know, you understand the sentiment I'm getting at, right? Yeah, well, I I was tracking the race on social media, and I also saw the after race posts and comments, and then I talked with a bunch of my athletes, and I have some takeaways here that I think are worth people hearing. Okay. The first is that if you went out there and felt like this course was ridiculous, it didn't test the right skills, it it wasn't a fair competition, then I think that's important for you to feel because that's how the other side of the coin feels on courses that you like. Yeah. So it's important to know that when you do well, because the course suited you, probably 50% of the competition had the exact feelings you're feeling after this race. I anticipate having those feelings at almost uh, the next three races for me. Yeah. Big Bear, Utah, Mexico. That concept of a fair test is impossible because the only fair test is one that's fully clear and scripted beforehand what's being tested yeah and we can't be a subjective proctor of the test because we're the one taking it you get through a test even if think back to school if you knew everything on there you'd be like man that was an easy test and i really like that result and that you're gonna say that was probably a pretty good test and if you had a terrible time on there you'd be like man the teacher didn't teach us well or that was a stupid test so we're not able to look at it objectively I said subjective mm-hmm. before I meant objective. The second thing is that I don't want people to read too far into this race. Because if you go to what some people who are complaining about this race would call a real obstacle race, what does that mean to them? It usually means nasty terrain, steep climbs, or really, really demanding obstacles and carries. Well, if you go to one of those races and get totally exposed, you can fix it in like a month. You can go from being able to do three pull-ups to like 20 over the course of the summer if you dedicate like a daily assault on doing pull-ups and grip work. If you can't swing through rings, you can learn that in about a month. Less for some people. You can develop strength. You can develop skill very quickly. Even power hiking. Learning to power hike is like you can learn it over summer or over the winter. Mm-hmm. If you dedicate that same amount of time to 5K running, if you cut 30 seconds off your 5K, 10 seconds per mile, that's a, a, an enormous improvement. Yep. So the way that people feel when they go to a really nasty obstacle course or a big mountain race is it's like dejected and encouraged. When they go to something like this, where speed's at a premium, they leave depressed because they know this just might never be something I can make up minutes on. And so then they turn to hyperbole, like this was a terrible course, or this was a runner's course, or Spartans getting soft, or the obstacles don't matter anymore. I would argue the obstacles matter just as much. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they changed all the obstacles. Those seconds of efficiency matter more. You know, your you're running does the talking in these long mountain races. Honestly, I think your fitness and engine do because the the obstacles become a smaller and smaller portion of the event 
compared to its length. And so I would argue, even though, yes, like obstacles as far as failure was a non-factor other than the spear throw for people this weekend. But a two seconds here that VJ swings through beater, a five seconds here on Z-Wall for somebody who's got confidence in it. I would argue that obstacles mattered more than ever. It's just the failure was a non-issue and the carries were subjectively a five-second swing if you're in the top end between a fast one and a slow yeah. one. But those are, those are the seconds that matter in these races. In the high-end races, that's all that matters. So you could argue the opposite is what I'm saying. For sure. If we look at Spartan Ultra, I mean, sorry, Spartan World Championships in Tahoe, that's considered a really demanding tough course, but really the best mountain runners win that for the most part, mm -hmm. for the most part. So I just want people to remember that if you have an obstacle or a carry that is your strength and is the thing that always gets you back into the race, you have to remember to look at the opposite side of the coin, which is what weakness is this masking? Well, this race unmasked that weakness. And so if you're always demanding a big, long carry or a gnarly rig to keep you in the race, it's a great reminder that you have to work your fitness to keep you in the race so that you're not reliant upon someone coming up with something crazy. Because remember, to you, a rig or a massive carry is the equalizer and to other people, running is the equalizer. And it's the yep. beauty of the, this sport is that you can't rely on any one thing being the same in every race. So rather than point the finger externally and say, is this good for the sport? Well, guys, it's a one-off race. Maybe say, is this good for my fitness? And let me address it in training. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all that. I, I will say like the sentiments and we might as well talk about it. You know, Ryan Atkins made a post more, more of a proposition post about like, you know, creating, let's just say it harder courses, harder obstacles. And, and Ryan Kent made a post, which uh, or a comment, which I, I can get behind. And he said, like, I missed the mystery of the old races, like literally towing the start line and not knowing what you were getting like the allure of that suffering. And there was always those moments and times where you're like, Jesus, like this is barbaric Spartan racing, right? Like the true, the carry that might take John Elbin seven more minutes than it takes somebody else because it breaks you with a double sandbag on a double black diamond ski hill. And I also have to agree with those guys there. Like that was a big draw at first. And I do miss that too. But I still know what I'm getting when I show up to these races and I still choose to. So at that point, like, I, what can I complain about? I understand the conversation is a worthwhile conversation, but if it starts to sound excusey, and I'm not saying Ryan Kent or Ryan Atkins sounded excusey, because I really don't think they did. But uh, Kent for sure did not. But um, it's just an interesting, I don't know, interesting take. I get it. I understand it. The want to suffer more. Being forced into a situation in which breaks you makes builds character, and, and you have true war and battle stories. There's an allure there, and I... I back those guys up on that harder obstacle lanes for the pros to watch us display our talents. I think those are all valid and, and a worthwhile conversation, but like, at what point do we, what point do we just accept that Spartan race is a corporate beast? And I don't know what we're going to do about it. And I hate to say that, but what do you yeah. think? Well, I think that it's interesting. Just again, I'm not right, but I've been there since the beginning. And you know mm -hmm. what the number one complaint among the pro or elite racers was for the first three or four years of the sport? You can't have mystery on course. If you expect us to lay everything out there and empty the tank by the finish line and have a fantastic race, people need to know how long the race is, what obstacles are coming up so that they can time mm -hmm. their energy efficiently so that we race. 
Otherwise, you settle into this like 85% effort so that if something big pops up, you have something left over. And then there were these big mm. charges like the last two miles as soon as you realize, I can hear the festival music, it's time to kick. That was the so narrative funny. for the first three years. So I miss some of the gnarly carries. I miss the gnarly terrain, but those courses exist out there. You can still go find them. They just aren't always the ones that have big prize payout. Mm-hmm. So both sides are right. But just remember, like, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> the second thing that I find interesting, and this is not an attack on Ryan, because I feel like Ryan Atkins has earned the kind of like that Kobe Bryant right to criticize. I feel like he can say whatever he wants, and he's probably right. He's, yeah. yes, he's lived it long enough, but Ryan Atkins has earned that right. Kobe Bryant is infamous for getting in teammates' faces and just being blunt and brutal. Like, you're soft. You don't work hard enough. And it was generally extremely profane. But the teammates kind of had no choice but to say, like, listen, you might kind of, you might be being a dick about this, but you're Kobe Bryant and you live it. And you're better than I am. And you've earned the right to tell me that. And pretty much everyone was better for it. So Ryan has the right to say that. However, I don't believe that anyone is actually standing on firm ground to complain about a race if they had a disappointing race. So I think VJ and and uh, Lindsay are able to accurately complain about the course. Yep. Because they went through it, did well at it, survived it, and can and don't have their judgment clouded by, well, I didn't do well. And I think that's important to remember the timing of your course. I'm timing of your post. I think Ryan Kent did a good job of sharing his feelings on the race. He had a pretty good race, I would still say, considering it's not in his general scope anymore as his high rocks training is in full swing. But I thought he he did it. He had a good, like, level-headed sentiment about the courses of old versus now, suggestions, how the course played out, things like that. Ryan Atkins had the best post-race comment after Utah last year where everyone complained that Utah was too long, too steep, carries were too brutal, it was at altitude, and he basically said, you guys knew this race was coming. It's not our fault that you weren't prepared. Or you're preparing for another course that isn't like this. Like, that's not our fault. You all have the option to show up prepared. And I think that's the mentality to take out of this. If this course didn't work for you, it was because of a skill set or a fitness level. Yep. And and that's the thing to remember. If you're not preparing for this course, you can't complain about the course not suiting you. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't do well because you're not fast on the flats, that's not Spartan being soft. That's Spartan choosing a course that's fast. And the rest of the race is at altitude. <laughs> the rest of these races, altitude and in the mountains. So I think everyone will be just fine. It'll balance out. Yeah, you still see the argument about, you know, fast courses being easy and not hard. And people will get over that eventually. Like, I would argue the most painful race, I would I would dread a, a track 1500 or a 5K, the, the sharpness of that pain more or as much or more as a as a 45-minute Spartan race on flat terrain. Um, we don't have to have this conversation again, but when you can pin your effort level and your heart rate and just sit in the suck on a flat course. Like that's a, that's a whole level of suffering that I think some people don't really know how to access. They just need the duration to break them down. Well, if I'm going to be out on course for three and a half hours in a beast, 
like it's going to cause me to suffer and hate my life. Even if I go out at 80% effort, like it will force me into misery. On the short courses, you have to force yourself into misery. And there's a big difference there that people don't sometimes fully grasp, especially new runners or people that don't have a big diverse background in the sport of endur like endurance athletics. You're choosing the suffering in a short, fast, flat race. And in a long mountain race, the suffering's choosing you. You have no way around it. And so that's the big difference there. Yeah. If that makes and sense. No, it does. I think that gets back to the ego piece where you get destroyed by a course and you leave like, I can't wait to work on that. And you get destroyed by other people's speed and you leave depressed thinking they were out of sight two miles in and I couldn't do a thing about it. <laughs> yeah. This was a dumb race. So I, I mean, I have my own personal thoughts on it, but they don't matter. I think the fact is that Spartan could control this narrative by picking the courses for the series with parody mm -hmm. saying we're going to have a course that tests the speed and then we're going to have a course that tests altitude and we're going to have a course that tests nasty carries and terrain. But if they identify those races in advance, then people go in, I think with a different mindset, Hey, this is going to be the fast race rather than, you know, this is wine country. We have Hills we can find, but will we use them? And right. I think that if you just announce, here's why we chose the series to find the best all around skill set, then people can say, all right, so this is going to be my throwaway way, a throwaway race. I, I don't care as much about the flats or I know altitude is going to be rough, but I think just identifying what the series is and why will go a long way towards just getting rid of a lot of these complaints. Yep. This was not supposed to be my throwaway race, Bracken. But now it might be. <laughs> now it might be. Yeah, uh, from the event as a whole, I thought Spartan did a great job putting on the event. I will tell you what. I have not been in a Spartan race to date like this one where it was so intense from the start to the finish. Is like you had to be present, engaged, ready to move, counter moves, make moves, get through the obstacles as proficiently as possible. I would say in any series race, this has been, other than maybe like a Jacksonville sprint when it's a series race, it was electric from the aru to the finish line and the fact like you had to be you could not let off the gas once it was it reminded me of you know how like intense like a college cross country meet is where like every second every place matters every little bit counts and it's intense you're so engaged from start to finish it felt just like that and in the longer races sometimes you got to settle in and do your own thing so to speak this race it wasn't like that at all and that was pretty cool yeah for sure it's sure. yeah it's a great reminder that this is cross country moving forward. There are going to Sometimes. be packs. Yeah. And we kind of expected that with the depth of field. I guess it was what we expected in that regard. Yeah. And you know what? A couple of weeks from now in Big Bear and Utah, everyone's going to get their fix. There's going to be 10 minute oh, yeah. gaps. <laughs> There's going to be brutal carries. So, yep. Do we, uh, we got a few questions to get to, to kind of wrap up our, I think we can move on from this. I said, I wanted to make this like a 10 minute race summary and we turned it into 30 or 35. That always happens to us. Um, why don't we just cover the couple of the questions we got that, um, we want to, we think are relevant right now. Do you want to start with yours? Or you want me to start with mine? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Okay. So this is continue with our theme of analyzing this race. And I, I just do want people to remember that we're, we do spend time after these races because there's always takeaways, whether it's mindset wise, not making excuses about races or finding out what their race excuses really says about the holes in your fitness. 
um, whatever it is, we do want there to be a takeaway because every race that you run or workout needs to be analyzed like this because that's how you get better. So here's one. Here's a question. Just got through running the beast in slow. So for our non-Spartan runners, that is a half marathon trail race. Felt great through roughly mile seven, running hard, body feeling good, but started to cramp in my calves when I needed to use fast twitch muscles more, whether it's to jump on obstacles, etc. Blew up my whole body after missing spear and doing burpees around mile nine and basically shuffled the last three miles of the race to the finish. I was well hydrated, felt that my feeling was sufficient throughout the race. Do you think compromise running more would prevent cramping? Or do you think it comes down to time on feet and not big enough engine to run strong for 13 miles? This is a question we get with regularity and we answer with regularity, but it's always worth rehashing because people, I think this is one people discard when we talk about it in a Q&A until it affects them personally. 100%. So I'm going to keep powering through talking about this one all the time and eventually just through like sheer volume, it's going to hit everyone. And to back you up, I heard the same story another dozen times about that back half of the race and and the body going to shit on them and then just surviving. So the sentiment was shared by many. So if we can write off hydration, electrolyte levels, and fueling, that's where the conversation starts about how do I fix this? Because those are the quick ones. You, you can fix that with money. Buy a sports drink, buy electrolytes. By sports drink, I mean like a fueling fueling mix but you can you can solve that with money let's talk about training yeah why don't you talk about training bracken oh well talk about training well no i can i can i can i'll start it off and then why don't you just pound it home how's that sound oh i'll pound it yeah you're good for that you know again we've shared this how many times maybe three four we've talked about this in depth or in more detail but it just it it always comes down to your body's uh ability to stave off like impact and that means like, okay, sir, ma'am, I don't know who wrote this to you. Um, you know, think about the course conditions and, and what you went through. Have you run hard, firm, packed terrain in your race shoes going up and down for that long at a similar intensity so your body acclimates to all of those factors previously? Sure, maybe you've done long runs in your cushy hokas on softer muddy terrain because you live in the northeast sure maybe you put in the duration sure you do your obstacle work of course you do all that but now let's do it all at threshold in your race shoes with hard impact and having to spring up to jump to get to obstacles and walls and now all of a sudden your body's although you believe you've put all these ingredients together you haven't really made the recipe yet and so the for the first time you put the whole recipe together is out on the race course um and then you find weaknesses or flaws in that recipe and that is the combination how you put them together in training didn't simulate the race necessarily as well as you had hoped and then things start to break down on you and cramp or go or fatigue and that's sort of what happens and it's tough to simulate in training it's tough to go put on your vjs and run for three hours and and find a way to simulate obstacles when you're out on the trails alone i get it but that's really what's happening here is your body just was thrown at something that it hasn't truly done in a long time, probably for you. So that that's where I look first. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hit everything I want to talk about duration, intensity, footwear, terrain. 
Mm-hmm. So first of all, the terrain, that terrain was different than what a lot of people would see. You might have done the correct intensity or duration or footwear, but if you didn't do it on a hard pack, it's going to hurt you more. Second of all, as big of a believer I am in intervals, this is the downside of intervals, is that during a race, you have to tie it all together without rest. And so even if your duration and intensity was correct, you didn't necessarily have the intensity in terms of sustained damage leading into the second half of your intervals. So downhill work, for example, running downhill intervals. If you run them at race pace, you're not preparing yourself for a race day because you're running downhill hard, probably recovering and getting back up to the top and then doing it again. But in a race, you're not doing that. You're arriving to the top compromised and a little more damaged, and then you have to run race pace on those legs. So really, the only way around that is to do really fatigued descents or overspeed descents. And where you're really, really hammering and pounding your legs. And then the the, the piece you kept bringing up with doing it in your race shoes is so key. So That key. was actually the first place I went when I heard his question is, did you do full race prep duration intensity terrain in your race shoes and this is tough for people because race shoes are generally expensive and they always wear down quicker than you'd want but you have to do enough big workouts in your race shoes otherwise all that pounding you've taken does not translate to race day because you have a lower drop less cushion you're more forefoot or midfoot striking the, the loading force is different on your body because you're just hitting the ground differently. And so you can do all the other pieces correct. But if they weren't also done in race shoes, you're done. I agree. Kirk, back in the day, I had a Reebok deal. And I had to race in the Reebok all-terrains. I was lucky they worked for my feet, but they were not a cushion shoe. And so I did all my big work in those shoes and this the way i had to do that is i would lay out a workout in intensity and no duration and i would do that work let's say i was doing shoots and ladders or i was doing thousands on race terrain or i was doing a cut down run my workout ended when my feet calves soleus achilles no longer could handle the work and i have these really vivid memories of being up at gold camp reservoir and Stratton open space running these workouts in Colorado. And week one, I ran to the trail in those shoes, did the workout, and then cut the workout when my legs started barking at me and just hobbled down the mountain. And I got a seven mile day in. And then th- this was probably nine weeks out from Montana in 2015, I think. And by the time I got to Montana, I was doing 11 and a half, 12 mile workouts there. So I just scaled my ability to run in those shoes until I could race for eight, nine, 10 miles in those shoes. Mm -hmm. So it was like a linear progression of being able to handle the pounding that my shoes were going to give me. And I think you have to approach it that way. Yeah. And, and I don't think it was this, a guy that wrote this in a gentleman was gentleman probably has, sounds like he's pretty dedicated and he's probably Train the best he thought possible. Well thought out. He listed the things that could potentially go wrong. I don't think this isn't a fault of you or anybody who finds themselves in this position. Like you probably are training hard and smart. It's just again, like 
putting all the ingredients together in the right way in training to, to make it work out on course. And that's the, really the, the big sentiment. For example, like I could have seeked out like if the opening race was Jacksonville for the, the series this year, I would have been out on the snowy sloppy trails and slogging through junk in some of my quality sessions but I knew the first one was on hard packed terrain. So I was doing my quality work on the road, getting as much impact as possible. So I was prepared for that demand. And mm-hmm. they'd be like, you're training on the roads for a trail race. Well, yeah, because this is as close as it gets for me right now in the winter here in Minnesota. And the body held up pretty well to those conditions. So you just have to like think along, along those lines, um, the best you can. So you got time now before your next race, probably to, to fix those those issues you have enough time to change it it is not necessarily a failure you might have done everything right with what you knew to be true leading into that think back to Mm -hmm. when i did tennessee mile i did a three and a half hour prep for it and i was way ahead of pace and then i got out there and i started having issues at two and a half and the only difference was i realized i was intentionally running my descents on the grass part of the ski hill rather than the hard packed dirt Yep. I was doing everything right. And I even was there because I thought if it rains, it's going to be nasty and slick. So I'm going to stay in the slick grass. And as it turned out, I needed to do more work on the firm pack to be able to handle the actual just damage my quads were going to take. But I couldn't know that until after the race. And so maybe this was you did everything right. And now you reassess and you take this little piece of knowledge about what that one thing that could be better next time. And you use it to to analyze your next course before you get there and maybe make it a little bit even more perfect in your training hence why i'm trying to do minimal shoes for my long workouts heading into ireland because maybe i can wear my hokas but if i don't i'm in trouble if i can't handle my other race shoes yeah i think we pounded that one home again i'm sure we will in another three or four months when it comes up but yeah kirk you hear about this marathons now with super shoes people either do all their running in super shoes and then if they have to run in something else their quads get just beat to death or they say i spent 200 250 on these super shoes these are race day shoes and they really only do one or two test runs in the shoe to make sure they're not going to blister and it changes the way you strike the ground and it changes the way you engage your rear chain and that rears its head. So even though it's a better shoe, it's a faster shoe, you're not adapted to it. So for the road runners, keep that in mind with your super shoes. You have to get enough work in there that there's no questions on race day. And the more and more you get dialed in, like I never used to think like shoes really mattered. Even when I first got into the sport, like give me a lightest shoe with some lugs on it and I'll be fine. But like the more of a student you become of this and the more fit you become and the, the more competitive you become, like, that may be one of the most important decisions you make in your training and racing. Maybe the most important as far as being prepared for when you actually are out on the race course. So it's worth the discussion. And the more I get into this, more I understand your shoe obsession because you realize the importance. It's true. I counted the shoes at home recently, and and if I'm not rivaling you, I'd be shocked as far as ridiculous amounts of shoes that I probably don't need because they're worthwhile experiments. So. And when you're terrible, when you're just out there falling apart, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. And when you're the best in the world, you can probably beat everyone in the worst shoes. I see it with Killian Jornet all the time. He's running these crazy ultras in shoes that I couldn't do half the distance in. 
but he's a freak. He can get away with anything. Kennedy, or uh, Haile Gebrselassie set his world marathon record in a pair of streaks, I believe. No, no, he would have been in the adios. And mm-hmm. Kenaniso was in the streaks. Now no one would run in those because they didn't have any cushion. But those guys could do whatever they wanted. But for the rest of us, if you're not terrible and you're not the best in the world, shoe choice makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yep, finding that out. Um, do you have, you know, I have one more question that's kind of relevant. I don't know if you do or if we want to just save them for another day. What are you thinking? Let's do yours. I'm going to do mine and then we'll call this a day. Yeah. Um, all right. This is from Chris Ferguson, who's a local guy uh, here in Minneapolis. He organizes like the North Star Spartans group. He's been very involved in the community. Chris does a lot for the... Uh, for the local sport. So Chris deserves a big pat on the back. Chris Ferguson. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, he's a, he's a good dude. So he says, I listen to almost all of your podcasts and I'm getting ready for Montana. I realized that you and Bracken never really cover how to train for specific obstacles. And he's right. We actually have never like walked through a race course in the obstacles and been like, here's how to approach it. Here's what we think you should do in training. So Chris, I think we're going to have to have a training Tuesday coming up where we actually walk through everything. Don't you agree, Bracken? Yeah, and maybe we break it up. Maybe we just do like two obstacles per episode for a week or two. Yeah, this is a great idea, Chris. Um, And then he says specifically, I was wondering if you guys might have some technique tips or training tips for the box and vertical cargo 2.0. So Chris is of shorter stature, okay? Not a very tall guy. And when you look at this, that is a significant disadvantage on both the box and the vertical cargo 2.0, which can be ridiculously high now. In Florida, it was like up to my my eyeballs. It was so high. It was just like, you know, these things are nearly impossible for some people if you have a shorter stature. So um, this is coming from the perspective of one who isn't as gifted as Bracken with his 5'11 height or whatever you are. Someone who's vertically challenged. 5'11? Come on, Kirk. What are you, six foot? I'm effectively 6'8", like Sean Roberts. <laughs> I've gotten the box once. First time I ever tried it and haven't since. And I swear they raised the height on the Irish table ahead of the cargo net. And I agree with you, Chris. Sometimes it's just higher than others. Um, I haven't gotten that since Michigan in 2018 when I became mainstream, when it became mainstream after that. Stupid to do burpees on something that others make look easy. Any advice would be great. Um, I feel for you, first of all, very good question. It's a tough draw to have height be a disadvantage on some of these things. So where do you want to start with those two? I think there's two ways to get through these things if you can't just jump and force your way to the top. Mm-hmm. First is you have to get really good at the muscle up. If you want to yep. do front facing, get up onto the box, you have to you have to first of all, jumping up onto something is difficult for people because your launch angle matters. You can't do it from too far away, or when you hit it, it just kind of swings your feet forward and your upper body back, and you can't jump backwards or you lose momentum. You have to be very intentional about your jump has to lead right into your grab and push-up. Otherwise, like you're just ruining your momentum. So actually working on your launch angle matters, but then getting to the point where dips and the top part of a muscle-up is really, really a bulletproof move for you because you have to fight and scramble to get whatever you can do to get your hands as far down your chest as you can. And then from then you just muscle up or throw your leg over. 
But if you can't do those things, I think learning the back hip circle approach to getting up on it is important for, for Irish table. Yep. And that is you stand underneath it and face back the way you came. Grab it with chin up grip wide, pull yourself up till your chin's about near the top. And then you lift your feet up over the top and scramble backwards over it. Yes. Rhea Koble does this. I did this at a frontline OCR race where you had to do it with a weighted vest. And I think it was at like seven feet, maybe, maybe six and a half feet off. So I couldn't do anything about jump and push. So I turned into the back hip circle approach. Go back, Chris, to Seattle 2019 and watch uh, the live coverage of Spartan. You can find it on YouTube because I've done this recently while I was on the treadmill. Chris, go back and watch Rhea Coble go over the Irish table in that race. It was a wet, slick, cold day. And maybe you've already seen it, but they actually get her on video doing this reverse flip technique in Seattle 2019. Um, I even had to take like four or five attempts at the box or at the uh, at that that day. But watch her what she does. That's what Bracken just explained. And you can be four foot tall, and this technique will work for you even on the men's. It has nothing to do then with your height. It takes it out of the equation. You need to be able to hold up your own body weight in that chin up grip position. But um, and it's a scary because you're going to be upside down, and you're going to feel like you could fall and break your neck. I get there's like some some resistance there, but watch that dissect it. And then at your next race in Montana, it's going to be your first crack at it. I get it. You know, it's going to be hard to duplicate in training, um, but you're going to have a real shot at it. And I think that's going to be your best bet. In training, you ask, like, what can I do? Um, first of all, you need to really practice the dip position. Um, and Bracken's exactly right about timing your jump. I see a lot of people walk up to it, try to get a little bouncy in the calves and bounce up and try to get it. I think a fast run into it timed with jumping the right distance out as Bracken said is going to carry that momentum up better than just sort of shuffling up to it and trying to jump vertically I think it's the right combo of your approach for me it's accelerating into the obstacle jumping at the right time propels me but what I like to do is take a smith machine bar um, or a squat rack and take your barbell and put that barbell or the smith bar at the height in which you think the Irish table is at Roughly try to simulate. Like this yeah. And so I have, I have clients and athletes do this. And so you're going to grab that bar and you're going to jump and try to give yourself like a, an assisted muscle up. It's the exact same height. Yes, a bar is easier to grab than the Irish table, but jump and extend those arms. So jump, get your arms underneath you and dip or extend on top all the way up. Just as if you'd have to do to get over the Irish or get over the, uh, yeah, the, the table. So again, simulate that. Um, Wherever you can put the bar at the appropriate height, even a little higher would be better to train. And then jump, push into that top end of the muscle up. It's basically an assisted muscle up, but it's going to give you that sort of proprioception you need. So that's where I would start in training and just do it over and over and over to, to fatigue till you can't actually do it. Do it for reps. You know, do it multiple times in a row until you're breathing hard and can't do it again. Rest, go back to it. Treat it like a strength training set. Um, that's where I would start in training. That is the exact thing i did back in the day at bigfoot union high school to prepare for my first two spartan races yep and i would do that i would do the assisted muscle ups hang swing jump a little bit until i couldn't do another one and then at the top i would do burnout little dips 
Yep. And it's important to, I think, do your dips on that same spot because you're having palms facing down, fingers facing forward, just like they will be on the box and on the Irish table. Yep. That's all I really have for that one. So for the for the the back hip circle, how how you get back up underneath it, it's really hard to describe it. You have to go watch it. But yep. the all you have to do for that one is train toes to bar, except you try to get knees to bar. So you you halfway pull up, you pull up to where your chin's yeah, you get to about ninety, and then just try to bring your knees up to the bar. And that's all it is. It's core, it's leg control. Yep, and if you exactly. find if you're at a CrossFit gym or a playground, anything where the pull-up bar is not impeded by the ceiling, you just do it there. You pull yourself up, and then you work on getting your knees and then thighs to the bar, and then rotate yourself up. And you can actually practice the exact. If you can do it on a bar, you can do it on the platform. A hundred percent for sure. Yeah, and to save you some time, in that 2019 Seattle Spartan, it's towards the end of the video of the race. That was like in the last half mile or mile of the race. So don't, so scroll forward to get to it. Don't waste a bunch of time. It's, it's near the end of the women's race. Um, and then let's get to the box real quick. Uh, people seem to struggle with that eight foot box. It's all about getting that reach to the bar on top. You have to get your hands to the bar on top to get yourself up. Because what happens is your hand gets pinched in that rope against the box. If you're just holding onto that rope, you end up like pigeonholing yourself where your hands get stuck because you're hanging on the rope, so your hand's pinched against the box. You lose your grip. you got to be able to get that big reach with one hand up to the actual bar instead of relying on the rope to pull you over. Now, this weekend, there were tons of knots in the 8-foot box. I think everybody could get the box this weekend because there were three knots in each rope, and you could shimmy your way up. might not be pretty. might take you a while. But for that one, it's almost the same thing. you got to just be able to muscle your way through it, and you got to find a way to get that hand to that bar. That's the key, in my opinion. I mean, taller guys, I've jumped up, not even touched the rope, and I've gotten the bar alone in a dry course. Um, Otherwise, it's one big, strong pull on the rope, and you use a jump-pull technique for one motion. You grab the rope as high as you can with both hands, you jump and pull, and then I swing one hand up over the top in one motion, and I grab that bar. That's exactly what I did this last weekend. Again, if you're shorter stature, that might be harder, but it is possible. But it's all about that momentum off the ground, a big, strong jump, a big, strong pull, just like that Irish table takes. And then one motion, get that hand up there. And then you got to use brute strength to muscle your way up. Maybe pinch the rope with your feet on the way to help you, especially if there's knots in it. Um, that's where I start with that one. Yeah. And for the people who are just weaker, shorter, or not proficient able to do that, then you start with one S hook or J hook on that rope. And one pull up, and that gives you your jump that Kirk would do. But mm-hmm. you can't pull you generally a second pull, or you're right, the rope pinches your hand. Yeah. So you get one solid footing, reach up, grab, and then from there, yeah, keep grabbing your feet up the rope, or just throw your leg up over the edge and grab it, or brute force strength, muscle it up. But you have to somehow, either through climbing the rope or jumping, get your hand to the pull. And if it's dry, you can treat it like the Irish table. And muscle up if you're strong enough. But if you're doing that, you probably don't struggle with it in the first place. Yeah, and that training I was telling you about with the bar and the jumping, the assisted muscle up, so to speak, will help you with the box as well. But, you know, it's one of those things where it is it is sort of a strength-to-weight ratio thing too. Like, I can pull myself up with one hand on that bar in the middle of a race because I have a good strength-to-weight ratio. So 
that does factor in in that technique, but the key is getting your hands on that bar and, and making it explosive. Instead of getting on the rope and then hanging and suffering and trying to inch your way up it, which might have to be the case, um, regardless, it's about like that forward inertia working for you and being able to just make a power movement um, instead of calculated little movements with your feet and arms. and Because it's so tricky. Once you're hanging on that rope without forward momentum, you're pinched against the box. And then you like lose ability to grab the rope and it becomes a big mess. And so the idea is to explode. I don't know. I don't know how else to put it on that one. And there's something you can do to train that one arm pull. That's one where you get on a pull-up bar and you either hang a rope or a, a skinny towel or a t-shirt with the other hand. And so one hand's doing pull-up grip and one's like six to eight inches lower than that, gripping on a towel. And yeah. you work pull-ups on that. Just that ability to drive power off your bottom hand and the top hand simultaneously. Yeah, that's great advice. I like that. I don't have anything else to really add to that, unfortunately. How about you? They're, they're the type of thing that you have to watch someone do it. You try to bulletproof it in the gym, and then you got to get out in course and try it. Mm-hmm. try it. Yeah, and you'd be a good candidate, Chris, to um, like book it. I don't know if you're racing both days in Montana or not, but you'd be a great candidate after your last race, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, to listen. I hate to tell you, but they don't pay attention to what the hell's going on out there. Like the volunteers, you just go back out on course and you hit those ones you're unsure about. Keep your headband on. Those volunteers are there to just have a good time and make sure you have a good time. Nobody knows if you're registered or if you're, they're not looking at your wrist to see if you still have a timing chip on. Nobody cares. Go back out there, spend 10 minutes on both and figure it out when you're not in a race mode afterwards. Cause I know doing it before is going to be tough cause you're not able to get on course before. So that's what I would do. And I would just sacrifice. I'd, you'll fly out a day later and be like, okay, today on Sunday, even if I'm not racing, I'm going to go get some, I'm going to go get some work in and that confidence will go a long ways. So that's what I suggest my athletes do is just go out and play. And again, you can get away with it. Not, I'll not tell you what, that backward approach is only scary the first time. And then it's just, it's in your back pocket. It's, it's waiting there for me. Anytime I have cramps, that's my, that's my move. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think, I think we got enough, those questions in anything else you want to add to today, sir? Just a reminder that people need to tell me their shoe advice for ultra distance fell running. Yeah, I can't help you there. It's rare that I, I open the door for, I want shoe advice, but I want shoe advice. You have to go back and watch like the, uh, like the golden trail series and just like zoom in on what the foot choices were for each race. Here's the problem with that. Is it European ultra runners all wear very minimal shoes and they can get away with it. Yeah, That's do. all they train in. They're, they're used to it. And second, they're all 130, 140 pounds. Yeah. I'm sitting at 181 right now and I've not, I didn't grow up in the mountains, so I can't handle what they can Big handle. Boy. That's why I, I, I always tell people you can't just copy what the pros wear because they're tiny. It's so true. It's so true. I got a, um, so we're going to go on a hike today, like a, I don't know, two to 3000 foot gain hike. That's on our agenda today. But tomorrow I want to make sure I leave with a bunch of damage in my legs because big bears next and steep climbs and descents. And I have a concrete climb from the village up to the top. That's about 1400 feet of straight concrete and about two miles. So I'm going to go hit that for reps. And I didn't really bring the best, I didn't hit the, the best, bring the best shoes and I haven't descended since 
July of last year or August of last year. So talk about creating some damage. So my plan is to go hit that for reps tomorrow on concrete. And it goes between 10 and 25% on the road, depending. It's steep at some point. Oh, real steep at some, a couple of little blips. Yep. That's too steep to run down with your normal stride. There's going to be portions where I'm going to have 25%. I'm going to have to break. It's just these little blips where they go over these brims. But anyways, I think I'm going to be walking a little funny. So talk about taking damage. What I'm getting at is your boy is going to be in rough shape, but it's going to be on purpose. So, What grade was that backside of the hill at Afton that we did on the pavement? I think 20 to 12. No, I think 15 to uh, there's one. That's probably 15. I can't imagine 10 more percent on pavement. Because I was smoked from that. The entire hill is that with some steeper little jumps at points. Um, so it'll be it'll be a, a, a grind. But anyways, talk about teaching to the test. We're going to do that. That's teaching to the test. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you all had a great race and slow. And if you didn't, suck it up. <laughs> that's, my, that's my swan song here. My sentiment, my goodbye. Learn from it and move on. Yep. And I appreciate you listening. Man, I will tell you what, Brack, and I have this conversation every time we go to a race, but I heard so many people out there in support, even though they knew after that, you know, the back half of the race where I clearly wasn't where I wanted to be. You people are so damn nice. Hearing name, feeling supported. I never had that before we started this podcast, right? Nobody knew who I was or gave a damn. And so, like, feeling supported out there, I felt like I had to stay in it a little bit for, like, other people, which sounds bizarre, but um, it was so helpful. My name so many times. People are awesome. So thank you. Love you. It's a beautiful thing. Can't wait till I'm back out there on course, Kirk. Yeah, man. When are you going to get out? When are we going to rub shoulders, man, out there? When is the first Midwest race? Mm, I don't know. No idea. We'll have to confirm offline. We'll make plans. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, are we coming out with a Friday episode this week? Yeah, we are. We might have Vito. Okay. All right. Till next time. See ya.